All right, you ready to go? Yep. Jamie Nasbit Golden, you always have such cool. Is that was that a was that your phone? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm gonna start sorry, again. That's like, let me try to. I keep forgetting I have to mute. Oh no, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, messing up again. At um, least you don't. Well, I was just gonna say, at least you don't swear like me now. But there it was. Like, <laughs> like a sailor. Otherwise, I'm trying to keep it clean. Because it's a family show. A family show it is. Well, most of the time anyways. Hey, everybody. I'm John Hanson, host of It's All Good, a Block Club Chicago podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll get to episode 16 in just a moment. But hey, we have a wonderful sponsor for this episode. They were big fans of the show. They wanted to jump on and tell their story, too. It's St. Paul's UCC and their pastor, Matt Fitzgerald. One of the great things about this church is that it's been historically and forward-looking. People are made to feel welcome here. We're delighted to uh, get in the ears of your listeners and to be a part of this wonderful thing you're doing. And you can learn more about the Lincoln Park Church at spucc.org slash good news. And we'll have a bit more from them later on. Okay, today's episode is an incredible story, but I do want to give the appropriate heads up. It includes descriptions of substance abuse, rape, suicidal thoughts, and trafficking. This is episode 16, The Survivor, Saving Chicagoans. I remember being about 14 years old. I was filled with so much pain. I didn't even know why, right? I, I, I didn't know everything that I was going through was, was wrong. I thought it was normal. Melissa Hernandez's childhood was anything but normal. It's amazing that anyone could have gotten out of some of the circumstances she endured alive, let alone contributing to her community and her city in such a big way. You all know it's a good news podcast, so we're going to get to that in a bit. But to understand Melissa's drive, it's important to hear a bit about how the Belmont Cragen native grew up. Yeah, I went through it all. You know, I was I was physically abused, you know, both of my mom and my stepdad, you know, did drugs uh, in front of us. We were moving from home to home. I think I was in about maybe eight different grammar schools. I think there was times where I was out of school for very long periods of time. And in the midst of all of that, um, I was I was being sexually abused. I got always was in trouble with the cops. Yeah. And it gets worse. Kirti Gopal profiled Melissa's journey for Block Club Chicago. She says that Melissa's openness about her story helps others. She's so open with everyone and just really speaks about her challenges that she's gone through and things she's overcome and things she's had to deal with in a way that I think helps her connect with people and just get, I don't know, like more genuine relationships. I started to kind of school a lot. I became really angry. I joined a gang myself. I was running the streets. I got into a lot of fights. I started using drugs, um, same drugs that I saw my parents using growing up. It was I, I was in a lot of pain. I was I was in a lot of pain. That pain manifested itself in a way that's pretty disturbing to hear, but it does offer a glimpse into the life of a teenager who thinks there's no way out of a life that she inherited. I, I remember putting a gun to my head. Um, I took it from uh, my friend. She was sleeping, and I ran to the alley, sat in front of her garage and put the gun to my head. I pulled the trigger and it jammed. Yeah, there was, there was, I contemplated suicide. Suicide was just like, oh my God, it was like a dream to just escape all that pain. Melissa's drug use increased and she turned to heroin. That led directly into the world of sex trafficking. One of my other gang member friends introduced me to someone stating that they will take care of me. Um, they'll make sure that I'm not sick every day. What I didn't know was that this person was a pimp. 
went to go stay with him. I woke up to drugs, went to sleep to drugs. I mean, I was so high that I, I don't even remember a lot. I remember times where I wanted to leave and I wasn't able to leave. I remember um, him beating me up at one point. I was trafficked to places like Indianapolis, uh, Las Vegas. Um, I was a kid. I was, I was about 16, 17 years old at the time. Melissa left one pimp and was guided by friends to another. She escaped him eventually, made it back to Chicago. She somehow survived, but moving home didn't mean a changed life. She had a warrant out for her arrest. Drugs were still a huge part of her life. She didn't have parents to help her through it. And most of all, the emotional burden she carried of a lost childhood. I walked around many, many years with this ball of aching pain in my chest that I thought that was normal. I lived with it for so long. I, I thought that was normal. I didn't know any other way. But then she started therapy, and that helped a bit. Her drug use eased. The pain was still there, of course, but things got a little bit better. But they really didn't change until Melissa, who says she essentially didn't grow up with a mother, became one herself. I had my first son. When he was born and he came out, I heard his cry. And that was the first time that I cried tears of happiness. And it kind of threw me into shock. I didn't even know that was a thing, you know. But I, I remember my heart feeling so much joy and so much love. And it was just something that I, I never knew existed. I, I want I want to create this wonderful environment. I, I want to give him the things that I've never had in my life. Most of all, I want to give him a mom. I, I don't want him to be without a mom. So Melissa had motivation. She wanted to teach empathy and sympathy to her child, but it wasn't something that happened overnight. He was my driving force, but still there was years that I, I didn't know how to turn my life around. I, I thought that being on welfare, you know, living off the system and not being able to pay my rent, I thought that was a way of life. And I was raised, you know, raised off like Aldi food, not saying Aldi food is not great, but... <laughs> I didn't know. I know I wanted change. I just didn't know what that meant or how that looked. It was the process of Melissa finding work and going to school that eventually led her to not only turning her life around, but impacting hundreds of Chicagoans. And look, this journey was not quick. And the highlights I'm offering here, they do little to no justice to tell the story of the strength, the hard work, the struggle that it really takes to pull oneself off from the bottom while raising one and then eventually two kids. But here we go. She got trained as a dental hygienist. She did that, finding work for years. She eventually decided to go back to school at a city college and ended up in a sociology class where something her professor said changed Melissa's life. Society lacks sympathy. And here I am judging society like, oh my God, society sucks. How can society be like this? And then when she ended it with, I just want to remind you, you are society. And I was like, oh my God, she's, she's right. That's when I left that class that day and I was like, we, we have to be givers. We have to, we have to help in some way, shape or form. And so it started with her and her two kids giving small meals to people they saw on the street. They'd stop and give a few bucks to people living underneath the Kennedy. I mean, there were times where I gave somebody my last dollar and I was like, you know what? It's easier for me to get that dollar back than that person. So it was okay. 
While writing the story for Block Club Chicago, Curity spent a lot of time with Melissa and says that the outreach efforts went from food to a couple bucks to a lot more. Like she came home from work and started making all these meals in her kitchen. Her kids were doing their homework and like she's just running all this stuff in her life. She's always doing something. She's got a lot, a lot going on and she still finds time to really, really be um, giving back and just helping people out. She always really wanted to include her kids in the works she was doing and kind of um, share her values with them and, and teach them about just helping out wherever they can. And they are both really supportive of her work. In my kitchen one day in the house, I was talking to my son, who's probably 11 at the time. I'm like, hey, we could feed more people. There's more people like this. They, they need our help. And here's my son. Let's do it, mom. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, my kids were like, mom, I love this. This is amazing. And I'm like, yes, I think, I think I'm teaching my kids empathy. Melissa did so much outreach that eventually she made it her job. She became the outreach director at Above and Beyond Family Recovery Center. But what she's really known for in the community is the organization she founded, the Puerto Rico Project. Which was originally kind of founded because she learned about this really like strange circumstance that was happening. And it was around 2015 where a lot of government officials from Puerto Rican municipalities were encouraging people struggling with addiction to buy one-way tickets to cities in the mainland U.S., so um, cities including Chicago, but also other places, um, with promises of drug treatment, housing, um, employment, all that kind of stuff. A lot of the people who were coming to these cities weren't actually finding safe facilities. Either these facilities were unlicensed or they were unsafe. And a lot of these people who were coming here to find treatment were actually ending up homeless and without support. And when Melissa found out about this, she sprung into action and was thinking about ways to do direct outreach and started driving around and providing food and safer drug use kits to people who were in need. And so I created this social media page. Uh, I was like, people need help. Help me help them. That's how it started. She has volunteers who help her out. She also works at an addiction recovery center and can sometimes get people set up with more resources. Um, and it's really grown out from that. Outreach, food, clothes, money, obviously a huge help to people. But Melissa began working through her job at distributing naloxone, something that reverses a drug overdose. Not only does she give it out to unhoused people that often encounter people that have OD'd, but Melissa herself has learned to administer it too. It was still scary. I was still trembling. I was anxiety ridden. I hit the person and he he's, he's alive today. Now, mind you, I overdosed twice. I didn't know it was naloxone that saved my life. And it's not lost on Melissa that many of the women she helps are in similar situations to the life that she left behind. And I'm like, oh, I know what you did there, universe. <laughs> I was like, I see what you did. It was kind of a preparation. You know, everything I went through was preparing me for that situation, for that project. Kirti went out with Melissa one night during her outreach efforts. She would kind of walk up and down and, and say, does anyone need anything? Is there anything you need? Um, if someone asked her to bring something to them, she would. If someone wanted to come to the car and get something, she would um, do that. So she was very much not pressuring anyone and just asking people, what do you need? How can I help? What would be helpful? It was really inspiring to see her dedication to her work and to hear her tell her story and just see how much impact one person can make. Up next for the Puerto Rico Project, Melissa wants to buy a mobile shower unit for Chicago's unhoused residents. There's a link on the Puerto Rico Project's Facebook page where you can donate and help out. Well, Melissa says she doesn't look back too much on the early years of pain and suffering in her life. When she does, it reminds her about how far she's come. Oh God, I did. I made it out of so much. I did. And everything. 
when I do look back, I'm like, how, how did I do that? It has been a spiritual journey for me and I learned so much and you're here for a reason, you know, keep going, don't lose hope, don't lose hope. You know, you're loved, you're valuable. I mean, keep going, keep going. This episode is sponsored in part by St. Paul's UCC in Lincoln Park. Here's a bit from Pastor Matt Fitzgerald. Much of the church happens outside the doors in terms of our service to the city, to the world, to our neighborhood. Inside the doors, I really think of the church as a place for people to launch themselves out into the world, using the church as a place to draw energy from, and oftentimes to inspire the church and to motivate us. At other junctures in a person's life, what they really need out of church is a place to recover from something, to heal, to ask questions, to just find some respite. We are uh, traditional but not conventional. They're going to feel at home in St. Paul's. We have a choir, we stand up and sit down when we sing hymns and the scripture reading, but we also have a really, really wonderful gospel trio, lots of kids. One of the things I love about St. Paul's in particular is the way in which it fosters intergenerational community. It's a friendly place, it's a bright place. It feels like home. People are here to support each other without a doubt and come in looking for community. If you get sick, you're gonna get a casserole. If you have a baby, people will be there to both offer wisdom, we've been through it before, celebration. It's a real place of mutual support. And you have a good softball team. I've played on church softball teams that didn't win a single game. I've seen like the pitcher married to the first base person and they get in an argument in the middle of the game. <laughs> this team really, they, they do a great job. We have a, a weekly pickup basketball game in the gym in the church, which is one of the things I think is for me, I'm a basketball player, but it's so fun ranging from high school students to a couple of guys in their 70s. For more, head to spucc.org slash good news. And we'll have more about them in an upcoming episode. Now back to the show. Jamie Nesbitt-Golden, first of all, I love every story you write, but I am always blown away when you introduce us to someone from the community in history that we don't know, like I'm a history lover, and I'm embarrassed. I didn't know who Edda Moten Barnett was, but I'm so glad I get to learn a little bit about her. Yeah, no. So like, again, lived in Bronzeville all my life. I think I've heard, you know, you, you hear about people, but you never really know these people until someone, you know, introduces you to them in a way. Yeah. So, um, and she's, I mean, she did everything. And I mean, in the second graph, you have that her fans include Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Sidney Poitier. Not not yeah. a bad, not a bad fan club there. I mean, listen, like uh, she she uh, she touched a lot of people. She was actually the first African-American female to be invited to perform at the White House by FDR. It's remarkable. Like, I mean, uh, when I spoke with um, Lynn McDaniel, who was handling her state, her estate sale, you know, she talked about how it was remarkable for a woman of, of her time to be able to sort of travel the world in a diplomatic passport. Because again, Black woman in the early 20th century doing these things, you know, philanthropists, you know, like her first acting role, I believe, was playing a widow and not a maid. And that was remarkable, again, for the time. So she led this incredible life. Um, she lived to 102. Wow. She passed away in 2004. Her 10 room, I think 10 or 12 room mansion was on 38th and Prairie, where she lived until she until she passed. And her, her daughter uh, lived uh, there for a time until she sold the place in around 2009. 
Um, so again, like steeped in history and you're just sort of, again, sort of taken away by just, you know, like uh, Len shared some of the uh, things that are some of the items that will be up for sale. Uh, it's happening next month on se uh, September 18th and 19th. You know, seeing some of these effects, seeing some of these items, like uh, there's a bust that an artist made of her. There are photographs with Jimmy Stewart <laughs> and the Nicholas Brothers, who were uh, this uh, famous tap dancing duel um, in the early uh, 30s and 40s. There's a really fly photo of her in a, in a leopard jacket walking <laughs> a leopard. It's insane. I, I also interviewed an, a journalist who interviewed her um, towards the end of her life and and she described that, you know, every interaction was warm and, and funny and genuine. And this was a woman who was just sharp and, and quick-witted and full of stories. So you're just sort of, you know, like she 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 was awestruck. And I and I, I would assume that anybody who, you know, had crossed her path, like say Sidney Poitier, who wrote an entire letter uh, telling her about his huge crush on her. Um, I think, you know, a lot of folks felt the same way. It's awesome. And I just yeah. like one more icon from Bronzeville that a lot of people in the neighborhood may know, maybe not, but certainly a lot of Chicagoans don't. And I just love that you're able to share it, even though it's through this estate sale, which is really cool in and of itself. But thanks, Jamie Nesbitt Golden. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This is cool. As always. I missed you. I know. I It's been, I, you took one week off from, you didn't take a week off. We didn't have you on yeah. for a week. And I, yeah, yeah. I felt your wrath on Twitter. So. <laughs> See I what learned, happened? I learned my mistake. <laughs> we'll see you next week, right, Jamie. Say, <laughs> have you seen that karaoke? Not a fox cut or a poker. Not a little bit of mirrorism, a Everyone loves a good butterfly fluttering by the neighborhood. Oh, Ariel, I'm off to another great start with this intro. Behind the scenes, this is my second try at it. Ariel, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm enjoying this last from you, John. <laughs> so this is cool. It's a, a block in the Portage Park neighborhood that is a, a pollinator haven. How to get started? Yeah, so Ruta, who is an avid gardener, she started this um, last fall. And she just really wanted to do something that would unite the, the community, bring some awareness to them and to just kind of show the power that native plants can have, obviously to help butterflies, bumblebees, and, and bring back some of those important um, creatures for our habitat and the atmosphere. And, and she's done such a wonderful job in the last year or so. It's the Bertro. Yeah, I'm saying that, right? Bertrow, Bertrow yes. Bert oh, that's it. See, that's why we have reporters embedded in the neighborhoods to correct people like me. Bertrow <laughs> Butterfly Garden Project. Because, yeah, I mean, like, it's specific native plants. There's a reason why you don't see butterflies and bees on certain streets, because you don't have any gardens that really attract them. So, exactly. I mean, I mentioned she does research in determining which things are going to be the best things to bring these uh, uh, insects back. Yeah, exactly. She... She really did do a lot of research and I mean, a lot of it she did know, but it also was and is a joint effort from a lot of neighbors on the block and many of them are also big gardeners and some of them have raised butterflies. We actually got to see a little butterfly enclosure yesterday and it was such a treat because I've never seen caterpillar, caterpillar, wow. <laughs> Oh, you can keep All going right, here. Okay, <laughs> I 
hate that word. Um, I've this is never... all staying in the podcast, by the way. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> um, I've never seen caterpillars mm-hmm. go from this sort of uh, chrysalis, which is on the top of this enclosure um, that is where they hatch. And then just the process of it is really fascinating. And we got to see this enclosure and it had one monarch butterfly in there. And Ruta actually tried to give me the butterfly to just have that experience of holding a butterfly in your hand. Um, I didn't get a chance. The butterfly wanted to fly out into the world. So more power (laughs) to it. But (laughs) it was just like so beautiful moment of like this butterfly was was ready. It was and it just it just went out. And and for her, she was saying that's also just part of it is watching nature do its thing and helping it along the way without intruding on it too much. I love your beat. Uh, Obviously, you cover so many important stories, but we often are talking about animals here. It's just it's so we really are. You're right. We are. Well, you're the it's like one of the communities that has a little bit more nature than the rest of them. And I'm envious of the Northwest side for that. Yes, that's so true. And, and I mean, even just these, these photos that Colin captured of the caterpillar here is just beautiful. And um, yeah, she really does want to attract more nature. And um, I mean, even, yeah, people just love walking by there just to learn. That's great. Ariel, nice job with this story as always. Thank you, John. Well, that's going to do it for episode 16, The Survivor Saving Chicagoans. For more on that story and all the stories at Block Club Chicago, head to blockclubchicago.org and consider being a subscriber. All right, earlier in the show, Jamie Nesbitt-Golden gave us a bit about Etta Moten Barnett. Here's a little bit more of a recording from 1933 of the Carioca. Thanks for listening. Now that you've done the Carioca, you never care to do the polka. And then you realize that you bamboo the rules. Tomorrow morning you'll discover the Carioca love. And when you dance it with each new love, that'll be true love just for you.